two of our series trial. And if you're just joining us, uh, we're going to take the next few weeks to make a biblical case for why we believe some of the things that we believe and why we teach some of the things that we teach. Uh, I said last week that it's uh, okay to disagree with me. Um, you know, disagreeing with me is not the marks that makes you a good Christian or a bad Christian. Uh, it's totally okay to disagree with me. But what I did say is that um, if we're going to consider ourselves disciples of Jesus, um, our opinions, our thoughts, the way we see the world around us should be um, informed by what we see in God's word. Last week, I tried to make the case that uh, the Bible, from cover to cover, is historically accurate, culturally uh, uh, relevant, even today, and that it is also personally beneficial for us. We started there because uh, for the rest of the series, uh, we're going to make our case for what we believe and why we believe it from the scriptures. And today I'm going to tackle the topic of baptism. All right. Uh, what is it? Who is it for? And why does it matter? All right. The question, is baptism necessary to be saved, is really, in my view, the wrong question. It's not the question I want to try to tackle this morning. The question I want to try to answer today is what is the connection, if any, between baptism and our salvation? Okay, uh, it probably wouldn't surprise you to, to know that most Christians believe that baptism is important and probably should be done. But when we look deeper into the beliefs of different denominations and different Christian traditions, we discover that lots of sincere followers of Jesus land in lots of different places on the topic of baptism and of the importance of baptism. So rather than get into uh, all the various things that different preachers and different theologians and different scholars have taught and believed throughout the years, I want to start this morning by giving you my perspective. I, like many, believe that baptism is important and those who want to follow Jesus should be baptized. However, where I find myself diverging uh, from the views of many preachers and scholars who, if I can just be straight with you, are lots smarter than me. You know, they have degrees beside their names that are, uh, you know, lots higher than mine. All right, but where I find myself diverging with respect to these individuals is, I believe, and what our church has kind of taught for the last 35 years or so, is that baptism is connected to our salvation. Objection, you might say. Okay, cool. Um, Baptism's good, you might say, and baptism is important, you might add, but it can't be connected to our salvation because baptism is a work, and the Bible says that we are saved by grace alone. All right, Frank, baptism's important, but it can't be a part of our salvation. And this might be precisely what you believe. All right, maybe this was taught in the church that you grew up in. This is the case for lots of folks, and the last thing that I wanna do is criticize or undermine faithful teachers of Jesus who are just trying to figure out uh, faith and, and the scriptures like anybody else. So here, here's kind of the deal I wanna make with you this morning if you're, if you're open to it. Um, if you will keep an open mind as we study the scriptures, like that's all I ask, all right? Open minds, that's it. I don't have to persuade you. You don't have to land where I land. But if you keep an open mind, that's all I ask, okay? Great, so... Let me deal with this first objection. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul writes, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, 
not by works, so that no one can boast. That kind of settles it, right? I mean, that's pretty much open and shut, isn't it? And if this were the only passage on this, I would probably agree with you. But one of the rules of biblical hermeneutics, you know, one of the rules of studying the Bible well is that you interpret all passages, all scriptures, off of other scriptures. And this isn't the only passage in our Bibles that deal with the topics of grace and faith and salvation. Right? If we were to isolate Ephesians chapter 2 and read it all by itself, you might think, Frank, by suggesting that baptism is a part of our salvation, aren't you undermining the fact that Paul says explicitly that we are saved by grace? And to this, I would say absolutely not. We are one thousand percent saved by God's grace alone, period, end of story. It's only through God's gracious action and Jesus' efforts on the cross that saved us, right? Put another way, if, if God hadn't acted in grace, we could not be saved regardless of what we believe and regardless of whether we are baptized or not. Grace is how we are saved and in my view, baptism is when we accept the time, the moment when we accept God's gracious gift of salvation. Objection, you say. Again, you're on, you're on your game today. Um, Frank, you're still suggesting that baptism is a part of salvation, but baptism is a work. How can you possibly square this idea based off of what we're seeing in Ephesians chapter two? After all, what did Paul and Silas tell the Philippian jailer when he asked what he must do to be saved. There they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Jesus himself said, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. You see, Frank, belief is all we need. Baptism is good, and people should probably be baptized, but it's not connected. It's not part of our salvation. Baptism is just an outward sign of what's already taken place in the heart of a believer. So at this point, I should probably start putting some cards on the table. All right, first, let me say this. Uh, I've got no problem, personally, calling baptism a work. If you want to call baptism a work, I say go nuts. But here's the question I have to ask. Who is doing the work at our baptism? In Romans chapter 6, Paul compares a repentant sinner being baptized in the water to a dead body being buried in the ground. There he says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, if we tease this comparison out just a little bit, I feel like it begs the question, who's doing the work at a burial? Does the dead body do the work or is work done to the dead body? I've witnessed my share of burials and I can tell you confidently that there has never once been a case where the body buried itself. Right? It, it, it doesn't happen. It's a lifeless corpse, and all the work is done to the body, not by the body. Right? All the work of the body is passive. 
I believe the same is true at our baptism. There is work happening undeniably. There's work happening at our baptism to be sure, but the work at baptism is being applied to us, not performed by us. Listen to what Paul says happens at our baptism. He says, in him, talking about Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, I love this Colossians 2 passage because there's so many helpful, valuable nuggets in it. Here, Paul is asserting that at our baptism, Jesus performed a a kind of heart surgery on us where he cut away the parts of us that were ruled by the flesh or ruled by our sinful nature. How? Through faith. Faith in what? The working of God. Baptism is when we accept salvation. Faith is how we accept salvation. And what saves us? It's the gracious working of God. Now, not only that, listen to what Paul tells the Galatian churches. He's making the case that uh, Gentiles are just as much a part of God's kingdom as the Jews are. And he says this in Galatians chapter three. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So get this, not only is something being removed at our baptism, the sinful nature or, or the flesh, as Paul described it in Colossians. Something else is being put on at our baptism. Here, Paul says we are clothed with Christ when we are baptized. Now, this isn't something that's visible, but it is something that is verifiable. Think back to what Paul wrote earlier in Romans chapter 6. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Right? The idea is, okay, um, when I sin, God covers that sin with grace. So maybe I should just keep on sinning and pile these sins up real high so that more and more grace shows up. Is that okay? And Paul's answer to that is absolutely not. This is foolish. Don't be a knucklehead. He goes on. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul is explaining that at our baptisms, you know, something happened. Baptism signified the moment in time where we passed from death to life, where we stopped walking toward sin and started walking toward Christ. And because of that fact, we are to live differently. Let's jump back to this Ephesians chapter two passage for a quick second. It reads, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, a lot of times these two verses kind of get read together, um, which is great. But verse 10 kind of gets lopped off and, and forgotten. In verse eight, we see what saves us, God's grace. And we see how we respond through faith. Then in verse 10, we're told why we're saved. It says this, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, all right? We certainly aren't saved by our works, but we are saved to continue the good works of Jesus. 
the depth of what takes place at our baptism isn't visible, but it is certainly verifiable in that we begin to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and start to produce fruit that wasn't present when we were still controlled by our flesh or by the sinful nature. So let's recap. Here's kind of my argument thus far. Work is certainly happening at our baptism, but it's God who's doing the work, not you and not me. He's removing the dead parts of us that don't belong, and he's clothing us with Christ. He's actively working, and we are let dead bodies, and the work is being applied to us. There's one other thing that I kind of need to try to tackle before I hit another objection or two, and that's this. In John's gospel, Jesus said something of particular interest on this subject of Uh, the relationship between faith and uh, works. In John chapter six, large crowds are following Jesus. And in verse 28, John records this exchange. It says, then they, talking about the crowds, asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, here's, here's my thing. After reading this verse, it would seem to me like Jesus is placing belief in the works category, right? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, isn't that odd to you? Jesus, does he know that belief and works are incompatible? Doesn't he know that they're like oil and water, that they don't work together hand in glove, that they must be mutually exclusive? Here's here's my question. If you're inclined to dismiss the connection of salvation and baptism because baptism must be a work, okay, that's fine. And I'll I'll respect your, your conclusion there. But will you be consistent and likewise dismiss the connection of salvation and faith as well? After all, Jesus is calling faith a work. He's calling belief a work. The simple answer, in my view, is that faith and works have always been two sides of the same coin. Jesus' statement here only highlights how intertwined faith and action are. Jesus' brother James put it like this. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Then a few verses later, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Here's my point. We can say that we believe in Jesus, but until we submit to him, is that faith a saving faith? James says demons believe in Jesus, so what? They don't faithfully submit to him. They don't voluntarily submit to him. So what good is their belief? What good is their mental assent to Jesus' lordship? No, genuine faith is always coupled, always connected by action. And when we are baptized, we accept God's grace and forgiveness through this act of faithful submission. On Pentecost Sunday, Peter preached the first gospel message and it wrecked the people who heard it. In fact, he kind of concluded his sermon like this. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
So what's important about this passage, though, is you know, powerful sermons are good, and, and it's good to have our hearts stirred and, and moved. But Luke goes on to tell us how the people responded, because genuine faith is always coupled with action. Verse 37 says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It's clear that Peter's words had an impact on these people, right? They were convicted of their sin and the conviction, the conviction went all the way down to their heart. It wasn't like a surface level ascent. It was, it was deep. I think it's also important to notice that they expected to respond in some way. Peter wasn't just passing along information for the sake of passing along information. Genuine faith is always coupled by action. What must we do? Repent and be baptized, he says. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The prescription for the sin in our lives is to accept God's gracious gift of forgiveness by repenting and being baptized. Now, you wouldn't believe the number of scholars and theologians and preachers who, again, are just way smarter than me. Their, their brains and their understanding of the scriptures, uh, they, they, they dwarf my understanding and my knowledge of the scriptures. But you would not believe the number of, of fellows who come to this passage and they will emphasize our need to repent and absolutely uh, overlook, discount our need to be baptized. And I can't understand this. If the Bible said jump on one foot and pat your head, that's what you gotta do to be saved or that's what salvation looks like, I would say jump on one foot and pat your head. Right? If it said you need to learn to juggle you know, irons, okay, Plug that bad boy up and learn to juggle. I don't know. But that's not what it says. It says repent and be baptized. And those that would say, well, you know, again, really smart people, they would say baptism is a work and repentance just means to change your mind. I would strenuously object to this idea, right? That baptism is a work that we perform and repentance is only a change in our thinking. Right? In fact, in the very same book of the Bible, in the book of Acts, Paul proclaims this. I preached first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea and also to the Gentiles that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things they do. Right? It shouldn't surprise us that Paul is suggesting that repentance is verifiable by our actions, that it's not just a change in our thinking. Why? Because genuine faith is always coupled with action. But here's the hang-up, I think, for many. Like, at the root, this is what I think the hang-up is. And I think it's, it's something called baptismal regeneration. And this is a theological term used to describe the idea that baptism in and of itself saves us. Now, can I just tell you that I've, I've never met a Christian who believes this idea all right, simply understood, baptismal regeneration is the belief that anyone who submits to baptism without even hearing the gospel, without knowledge of Jesus or faith in him will be saved because baptism in and of itself saves us. You can kind of see this idea present among Catholics when they baptize infants. Now, I'm not even gonna pretend that I'm a, a Catholic theologian or I understand Catholicism, 
But baptizing babies that have no concept of sin and no understanding of their need for a savior, in my view, has always seemed inconsistent with what we see in the scriptures, right? As New Testament Christians, we don't believe that the water's magic. We don't teach that the water is special or sacred in any way. Baptism without faith and repentance isn't baptism, though there is a name for that. We call it a bath. That's it. Nothing more. Faith, repentance, and baptism are all equally connected to our accepting God's gracious gift of salvation. Peter says that when we repent and are baptized, our sins are forgiven and we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But that's not all. Last week we mentioned the Apostle Paul and how at the beginning, like he, he hated Christians and he sought to persecute Christians, have some killed. And in, in one instance, he was on his way to the city of Damascus where he was gonna imprison even more. And uh, there were, sorry, somebody's putting on the brakes. I don't know if you heard that, I did. Um, while he's traveling to Damascus, he described like this, this uh, event that he had. It was this 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 event where Jesus appeared to him in this brilliant, blinding light and it left him unable to see for several days. He describes it like this. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear words from his mouth. You will be his witnesses to all people of what you've seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. My question is this. When are we forgiven of our sins? When are those sins washed away? When are we gifted with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Is it after we pray a prayer? Is it after we change our thinking? In my view, what we see consistently in the scriptures is when we confess Christ, we repent of our sins and are baptized, this is the faithful response we see from believers accepting God's grace time and time again, particularly in the book of Acts. Earlier, uh, we mentioned the Philippian jailer, right? Uh, let, me, let me give you this scene again, but we're gonna tease out the context just a little bit. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 16, verse 30 says, he, we're talking about the jailer, then brought them, Paul and Silas, out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. We are saved by God's grace through our faith at baptism for good works. Baptism is the time where God cuts away our hearts of stone, clothes us with Christ, and fills us with his Holy Spirit. He does this work, not us. We simply respond by obeying the commands that we find in Scripture. Objection, you might say. Good, you're on top of your game, I promise. While that sounds good, Frank, and maybe even a little bit persuasive, um, I think you might be overlooking something or someone that's really, really important 
Remember the thief on the cross? What did Jesus say to him? He said, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Frank, he wasn't baptized, but clearly Jesus promised to save him. Doesn't this prove that baptism, while good, it isn't connected to our salvation? And to this, I would respond, absolutely not. Right? And here's why. That's, it's a great question. It's a fair question. If you're thinking that, I think that uh, shows how spot on you are. But here's the deal. The thief on the cross was still living under the old covenant. He was saved the same way everyone in the old covenant or in the Old Testament was saved. Right? The thief on the cross was living under a different system than you and I. We are living under the new covenant. And it was established by Jesus following his death, burial, and resurrection. And it was first preached by the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. So while we can rejoice that this thief on the cross is you know, in heaven, in my view, we need to be conscientious that he is not our model for us to follow as new covenant disciples of Jesus. Writing to Titus, Paul reminds him, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit when he poured excuse me, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So here's kind of where I wanna land things this morning as I try to make the case that baptism is in fact connected to the salvation process. I believe that those who are able to be baptized should be baptized because genuine faith is always coupled with action. I believe that we're saved by God's grace through our faith at our baptism for the purpose of doing good works. And when we examine the scriptures, we find this pattern over and over, again, particularly in the book of Acts. There we see a couple astonishing things. There I mean the, the book of Acts. One is how different the people are. Right? Uh, these folks came from all different facets all over the world. Right? We had travelers from Pentecost. We had Samaritans. We had a sorcerer named Simon. We had an Ethiopian eunuch. We had a Pharisee named Saul. We had a Roman soldier named Cornelius. There was a Jewish businesswoman named Lydia, a Philippian jailer, as well as a synagogue leader named Crispus. Right? You aren't going to find people who are more radically different than a Samaritan sorcerer and an Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, two people couldn't be more opposite than a synagogue leader and a Roman soldier. But here's the other astonishing thing. In spite of all their cultural differences, their unique backgrounds, and their distinct lifestyles, all these people wound up in the very same place. And that is a watery grave of baptism with the Lord Jesus. When we examine the conversions present in the book of Acts, they always include people being baptized by immersion. And so in my view, that's what we should do as well. The water isn't magic. And I don't think that uh, we need to baptize toddlers or infants. 
because they don't understand sin or their need for a savior. I also believe it's possible, and this might surprise you, but I also believe that it's possible that God may make exceptions for people who come to faith perhaps on their deathbeds or, you know, who are lost in the desert and come to faith in the desert but can't get to water. I mean, after all, God is, he's good and he's gracious and he's fair on a level that I'll never know, right? What do the scriptures say? Man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart. I'm not gonna be the God to limit how the Lord might save people, but as far as we are able, people who are able to be baptized should be because that's the pattern that we see in the scriptures. And if you've never made that decision, I encourage you to do so today. If you're ready to turn from your sin, submit to Jesus and hand your life over to him, follow his leading instead of your own, there's no need to wait. The invitation's yours, the ball is in your court. I do believe that there's lots happening in our baptism but it's God who's doing the work. He's the one doing the heavy lifting, not us. And while we celebrate the faith of folks like the the thief on the cross, we need to keep in mind that this isn't our model for new new covenant uh, disciples who live under a different system. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection established the new covenant, and it was first preached by the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. In the new covenant established by Jesus, we're saved by grace, through faith, at baptism for the purpose of continuing the good works of Jesus. Baptism is the time when God cuts away our hearts of stone, clothes us with Christ, fills us with his spirit. Baptism is the time where we accept God's gracious invitation to join his family. As I said at the very beginning, you are more than welcome to disagree with me or land in a different place than I do. I'm not gonna pretend to know it all And again, disagreeing with me is not the mark of a good or a bad Christian, but I would challenge you to investigate the relationship between baptism and salvation for yourself. Perhaps take the time to to read through the book of Acts on your own with some specific questions in mind. How are our sins washed away? When are we clothed with Christ? When do Christians receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Are there examples of Christians praying a prayer to receive Jesus or asking Jesus into their hearts? One last thing I wanna say before we uh, pray and sing is this. If Jesus was baptized, and he was, and if Jesus did command us to go and baptize others, which he did, why would we resist following his example and ignoring his command. I can't think of a good reason. I can't think of a good reason to ignore his example and ignore following this command. And so, if you haven't been baptized and you'd like to, again, if you'd like to submit to Jesus, you can do that today. You can repent of your sins, you can be baptized into Christ, and you can start walking uh, with him in the newness of life. Uh, I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing the last song and if you've got a decision to make, this would be the perfect time to do so. Heavenly Father, you're a good God and we thank you for your word. As we consider what, um, what it's like to respond to you, Father, I pray that we will 
do so with the faith that you supply. Father, help us to, to come to you without any pretenses. Help us to understand that we don't have to have it all together, that we don't have to have answers to every question. But like a good dad, you're there for us. And you've made a way for us to come home in spite of the things that we've said and done. Thank you for Jesus, who makes it possible for us to come home to you. Thank you for his sacrifice that, that cleanses us of our sins. You're such a good God. We love you so much. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.